Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Pitch Masters. My name is Danny Fontaine and this week I talk to the fascinating Robin Dreek, former FBI agent and recruiter of Russian spies, best-selling author and one of the world's leading experts in gaining trust. Trigger warning. This episode contains some disturbing and occasionally graphic stories of the events of the 9-11 terrorist attacks and the subsequent events that unfolded. Robin Dreek, hello and welcome to the podcast. Now, you have one of the most interesting jobs that I've ever heard of in my entire life. So, Let's start there. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So, yes, I am a retired FBI agent, and my job inside the FBI was recruiting spies, and that's probably what I'm most notable for, but I'm a former United States Marine, former FBI spy recruiter, ran a counterintelligence behavioral analysis program for a number of years, and I am a best-selling author, podcaster, and there you go, that kind of stuff. Just just those few things, yeah. But... Just a couple. <laughs> Everyone's got a journey. We're good. Uh, well, <laughs> t- tell me a bit about your journey, because I think it's really, really interesting. How did you get to where you were today, where you are today? It's a great question. It's one of my favorite of all times. And it started out with failing at everything I thought I wanted to be in life, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like most of us do. We experience some fantastic trauma early on in life that kind of forges us in our path for f- the future. Mine started with, you know, I, I came from a very humble background with two parents that didn't have a college education. Um, alcohol abuse was rampant throughout families everywhere around me and my own. So you're faced with no money trying to fit in with the cool kids and trying to become an astronaut, which was my ultimate right, goal. Right, right. And when my, I'll never forget, my mom came home from work one day when I was about nine years old and my grandmother had just passed away who used to slip my mom a little cash now and then for school clothes for me. And my mother said, we have no money for school clothes this year. And this is nine years old. So you're getting ready to go into middle school and the how you looked was so important for her own. Yeah sense of self-worth and what we are so self-centered at that age, thinking the world is looking at you. So I, I needed a pair. I'll never get this because it was so imprinted. I needed a pair of Lee jeans okay. with a tag on the back. Yeah. I needed a pair of Nike sneakers. I needed an Adidas t-shirt, a red one. Right. And I needed a blue hoodie. Okay. And that cost, that was about 60 or $65 US at the time. And this was uh, early 80s. Uh, I, I mean, late, early, early 80s, um, probably around 80, 81, something like that. And so when my mother said we had no money for school clothes, I'm like, all right, I'm done with you. I'm going to work. And I, I hand wrote a bunch of flyers. And this is in upstate New York um, state. I lived in the woods, literally about a mile to the bus stop each way, walking every day and about then about a 45 minute bus ride. And I put flyers in mailboxes and I started manual labor and I was started earning cash and became exceptionally Mm self-reliant and tenacious and a a thought that I could solve any problem in the world. The challenge in that kind of behavior, and and who hasn't experienced something like that? Most people I've encountered and chatted with have experienced, you know, trauma, great trauma in life-shaping events earlier in life, which gives a, a great sense of that, a sense of purpose, a sense of I can do anything. 
And then that behavior gets rewarded when we're in middle school and high school by you become popular maybe or not popular, but either way, it's all about me. And in my case, I was gregarious and outgoing guy. I love people. I love a great conversation. Like, or even right now you're seeing, you cannot shut me up. <laughs> and, and so that you become like the captain of the football team and school president, things like that. Cause I want to go to the Naval Academy right. because literally it was going to a service Academy for me at the, in the United States because it was free. Right. And I thought that was the path to becoming an astronaut. But what that does was I thought it was all about me. Mm. Yet that's rewarded in words and deeds by adults around you as people saying, oh, you're a natural born leader. No, I was naturally born resilient and self-reliant and things like that from that earlier experiences, but I was very self-centered. Not in a narcissistic look at me way because I want, I want, I'm needy, but more of a behavior way because I had to be so self-focused for survival. Right. And so that journey started there. And I, I, I always say I want to be an astronaut, but you don't let someone who failed the SATs seven times to get an application to the Naval Academy, major in aerospace engineering. That's not a good mix. So I majored in aerospace engineering at the Naval Academy. It took me an extra year to get in the Naval Academy. Yeah. Um, failed out of that, shifted to political science. My eyes went bad, so I could no longer be a Navy pilot I wanted to be. So I went Marine Corps. And so everything kind of went sideways. But what I always wanted to do really was to make a great connection with other human beings and be a leader. Yeah. And so the path was fulfilled, but just never in the way that we ever imagined. So I go in the Marine Corps, I learn a lot of humility and, and finally experience what selflessness actually is and what leadership is, which is about self, not about your, yourself. Amen. It's about others. Yeah. And uh, came in the FBI. So tell me about that. I've always wondered how how does someone join the FBI? Do you do you apply or do you get recruited in the middle of the night? Or how does it work? Yes, there's really so many different paths to all these different lines of work when you're serving the government. My path happened to be, I was at Paris Island, South Carolina, where we trained Marine Corps um, recruits. I was a company commander down there, and I was a captain, and I was looking to get out of the Marine Corps because my wife and I wanted to start a family. And we, for us, we didn't want to mix the two together. We didn't think it would be the best for us. And so we had a recruiter from the FBI come down to Paris Island that believed that Marine Corps officers made great FBI agents. Right. And so he had a group of us get together and he said, all right, I'll get you to the next phase of, of the in-doc or the recruitment process for coming in. Um, and I'm like, can I keep serving my country? And he goes, yes. And I said, what's the retirement um, look like? And he goes, well, all your military time counts to retirement. And I was like, all right, I'll sign up. I'll try. Yeah. That was literally it. Uh, I had no idea what I was going to do inside <laughs> the FBI. I had no idea I was going to be signed to New York City. Right. I had no idea I was going to be a spy recruiter in, and be in New York City during 9-11. Um, so all those things were still in the future to come. But I just wanted to serve and do something patriotic still was kind of my, part of my upbringing and the time period in which I grew up. And 9-11 features in your books a lot. Actually, not a lot of people know this, but I was actually in living in New York in the year 2000 to 2001. I flew home back to England on September the 10th, 2001 on American Airlines. And the next day I woke up to the TV, and I couldn't speak to any of my friends or people that I'd been living with for the last year over there. It was horrific. But 
compares nothing to your story and the people who were there on that day. Tell us a bit about 9-11 and how it shaped your career and your life. Yeah, everyone has a, a, a story around 9-11 because it's one of those um, generational defining moments. And so mine was a little bit more unique. Not as many people had it just because I was in the FBI at the time. Our office was at 26 Federal Plaza, which is about five or six blocks away from the World Trade Center where it was. And I had just gotten a cup of coffee on the street that morning with my good friend, Drew. And it was, boy, I still remember it. And I can visualize in my mind right now, it was a beautiful day. It was sunny. It was cool. The wind was blowing. And we had just gotten a cup of coffee right on Broadway in front of our building. And we heard the first plane hit the North Tower. I literally looked up to my left because I was facing I was facing west. I looked up to my left and my friend Drew and I saw where the plane had hit. Mm-hmm. It was like front like a second ago. And it looked very small compared. I'll remember it was so striking. It looked so small compared to the facade of the tower because the tower was so big and wide. We both thought, and my friend had been an army pilot during Desert Storm and um, Black Hawk Down and things like that. So, and I had I had flown a bunch too, and so we both thought it looked like a small plane hit the tower because it was so strikingly small. Because no fire hadn't broken out, nothing had happened yet. There was no fireball from that one. So we go up to our floor, the 25th uh, floor of 26 Federal Plaza, where we had a pretty much line of sight view. And all I remember was watching the fire expand, the smoke expand to the floors around it. One of the fire departments was right next to our building. We saw them responding down to the towers. And that's when it started really hitting. We're all kind of gathered around the windows looking at that um, scene. And you started seeing what looked like debris falling from the towers, but that's when your mind started wrapping around that you started, it was actually legs and arms were flailing because mm. you were watching people jump from the towers. And I, I had seen eight people jump um, when the second tower got hit from the south and we saw that fireball come through live. So that's kind of where I was and what I was witnessing. And that's when all, that's when mayhem really broke out is when that second tower got hit. So what happened as an FBI agent at the time, were you expected to, you know, fairly high in the top of the food chain as, it, as government services goes. Were you expected to somehow step in and how, how does that even work in a situation like that? Um, do something. I, I just got off of talking to a good friend of mine and I say this to my friend, my son all the time as well. My son's a Marine and he was at the Naval Academy during COVID. And I remember he called one time really frustrated because of no one really had a lot of guidance on what to do, you know, for the incoming um, freshmen, hmm. which they call plebes. And I, I said to him, I, I related this story during 9-11. And I said, listen, there is no standing operating procedure for chaos. Right. Understand what your mission is and do something to move the, the needle forward in that. And so in this case, this is exactly the same. There was no one ever had a plan for what happens when an airliner hits a tower. Right. And the entire thing comes down. So chaos ensued. And our, I worked national security at the time as well. I've done it. I've done nothing but national security slash um, spy recruiting my whole career. And at that time, we were merged with the counterterrorism division as well. Matter of fact, my boss's boss at the time was a guy by the name of uh, John O'Neill. He had actually just retired and was 
had just died literally because he had taken over security in the World Trade Center and just died in the tower when it came down. And so, yes, so the FBI is charged with protecting the national security of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, whether it's standard criminal type stuff, terrorism type stuff, as well as espionage and, and spy type stuff. And so, yeah, we're tasked with starting an investigation. But we never do things alone. We do things in conjunction with a lot of other agencies, a lot of organizations. And I'll tell you what was the most impressive thing I'll never forget on that day was the organization of NYPD, the New York Police Department. It was, oh my gosh, they they had an SOP for chaos. It was crazy watching how organized that city was locked down within two seconds. Every highway was empty. Every entrance and egress point was closed. And they were on it. Their command center was stood up and they had, I, I've just never been more impressed with an organization in my entire life than how well they were organized and responded. Then we, we, we started as well because they are first responders and we're investigators. And so I remember I had lead you know, and those leads are the taskings you get when to start an investigation. I had lead number two for the pen, mm. it's called pen bomb or twin bomb. I think is the first original name for it, which was, this person sees plane flying down the Hudson River, and you have to go interview them about what they saw. That was literally the lead I had. I'm like, dude, you and like five million other people saw a plane coming down the Hudson River. Right, so it was right. you. You literally run down, investigate every single phone call, lead, idea. I mean, people were finding business cards inside of abandoned cars that I was going to interview doctors at hospitals because it was a business card of someone with a Muslim name. Right. Um, we had people on the on the on the watch list that we had just started. I'll never forget this. I'd gone out to John F. Kennedy Airport because we had just been notified that a name hit had just come in on a British Airways flight because the airports had just opened back up and a British Airways flight had just landed at JFK and a name hit had happened on it. And literally it was the same name. It was, in a, it was a gentleman coming in from India and he had the same name as like John Smith in the United States, the most common name ever. And right, okay. I remember I get out to the air, to the airport. I'm at the jetway. I'm literally wearing jeans and a t-shirt and a pair of sneakers. Cause a lot of times you have no idea what you're going to do every day. Sometimes we're out, out at the landfill where they're bringing all the debris because we're looking for any kind of you know remnants of bodies or anything else for family members. I actually have a piece right here. I know if people are listening, they won't get it, but this is a piece of the glass from the World Trade Center that I ha that I have that day. So this is actually from Windows of the World of the Trade Center. Wow. And so I, we get out to the airliner, and I remember when I get there, the chief of security for the airport, as well as um, British Airways, said, hey, if you want, we'll blow the chutes out. We'll get everyone off the plane. I'm like, oh, my God, right. he's already on the ground. That'll be a way. Yeah. I said, where is he sitting? They gave me the seat number. I said, well, just have everyone stay in their seats. We'll go in and we'll nice take, you know, we don't, this guy's not a bad guy, just a name hit. So we go on. I remember everyone that we were sitting there, everyone had their hands on their knees and the entire jet. You know how everyone just stands up as soon as the plane lands? Yeah. Everyone looked positively terrified and petrified and not moving a muscle as we walked on the plane and, and asked this gentleman to come with us. And you felt so bad because this guy was literally trying to make an immigration appointment in LA. He had like five connecting flights because he did like Travelocity or something like that, trying to do the cheapest thing. And he was wearing a, I'll never get this. So this guy was a name hit. He's wearing a pair of flip-flops. He had, his carry-on was a, a grocery bag and that was it. 
And so we had to detain him. We had to talk to him, interview him. And then I, I remember asking the Port Authority police to rush him over to his next flight so he could make his next flight to, to for his connection flight, trying to make his immigration appointment because he wasn't, there's nothing wrong with him. He just had a similar name. And I'll never forget, I'm about to go out to the command post, having just cleared this guy. Another agent's running the opposite direction saying, hey, we got to hurry up. We got a name hit on this Delta flight. It's about to go out. I'm like, dude, we just <laughs> talked to him because they're about to stop him again. <laughs> the same guy. Right? Yeah, same guy. So oh, that, that was just one day, one moment of that chaos. <laughs> wow. And I mean, what's interesting, a lot of your work is about trust, of course. 100%. And in that day, do you think you know, the trust of a nation was, was broken. I got goosebumps thinking about it. The, it wasn't, it was broken with, with maybe external, but internal boy, they were trusting you, trusting a, the public servants to do everything. The, the amount of the probably everyone's got different images that strike and remember them based on their upbringing. And since I'm, I'm someone that always, sees and looks for connections with other human beings. The thing that struck me the most was on the West Side Highway, which was the main corridor in and out of both Ground Zero as well as different command posts, there were thousands upon thousands of people lining the street every single day, 24 hours a day in all weather. And they were holding up signs, basically just thanking us for what we were doing, thanking us for saving America. Mm. Um, then little kids were standing there holding up signs, please find my daddy, please find my mommy. And everyone had this this expectation of of you to do something. And it's a very overwhelming feeling that you weren't doing enough every day. And so that kind of ate at you. But the trust was there that you could do something. That's why it was a self-imposed... I must do more. And that can be detrimental to your health eventually as well. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's all just so deep, isn't it? You are going through the same trauma as these people mm. who want your help. And at the same time, you've got all of that pressure on your shoulders that you're in a position. Still, as you mentioned earlier, just as a fellow human being on the planet, mm. but you've, 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 you've got the badge, which means you've got to be doing more than a lot of the others. It's, it's a lot. I mean, got to do something. Have you recovered from this trauma? Whoever really recovers, you, you, you take the lessons you learn from everything and you bring it forward with you. I learned a tremendous amount about everything. Probably the most profound thing I, I talk about and share about that time was the trauma you don't recognize because it builds. And that feeling of trying to save the world was the expectation you felt every day. And every day you go into work and you're, we were on, on 12 hour shifts, 12 on, 12 off. It didn't count your commute time. And it was seven days a week for months. We didn't have a day off until, because September 11th obviously was in September. We didn't have our first day off until late November. I think Thanksgiving is when we actually finally had a day off. And so I was on a 6 a.m. to midnight shift and they generally gave you your lead. You had to do around 1159 at night. (laughs) <laughs> and you couldn't go home until your lead was covered. Your lead uh, is to talk to someone. And those people you had to talk to were in bed. And so you literally, these were very, very long days. And what happened was you go into the, your 
command post that you're going to sit and wait for your lead to do whatever you're going to do that day. And you're seeing all these people holding up these signs, cheering. You had to have your windows down because they're throwing in bottles of water. They're throwing in handmade sandwiches. They're really doing all they could to support you. While that expectation was you're going to save the world. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, having done one very, very small thing of having talked to one human being and maybe gotten something of value, 99% 99% of the time, got nothing of value. You you pass those same people cheering you on the way home saying, I didn't do enough. And so you say to yourself, I need to do more tomorrow and do more tomorrow. And so that really builds into mm. overworking an unhealthy behavior. Yeah. And what I realized after a year of overworking and neglecting every other relationship in my life was, wow, I was wrong. You cannot try to save the world, but you can try to make a difference just one person at a time. Mm -hmm. So let's just focus on one conversation at a time, one relationship at a time. And if you can make a difference in that one person's life, they can take that forward and make a difference in maybe one or two people's lives. And so I went from the macro to the micro and also had had a really good friend. Matter of fact, in the book, his name is Jesse Thorne and in life, his name is John. We chatted nonstop. I picked him up every day from his house and getting commuted in every day. And uh, he, he's an introvert, luckily, and I'm the extrovert. And we, the funny thing is we were at a Fresh Kills landfill one day, raking, as we called it, for fingers and toes. Um, sorry about the morbidity of the reference, but that's literally what we were yeah. doing, looking for something yeah. to get back a family. And there's a priest out there. And we're talking about miles upon miles of huge rubble piles and you are in sludge up to your knees sometimes, and you didn't even want to know it was in the sludge. And there's this priest walking around, and I remember he walked up to John next to me, and he goes, "Hello, my son. You know, do you need to talk? You know, mm. things out, or mm. you know?" And he goes, "Talk, talk. I can't get this guy to shut up talking to me because <laughs> I don't need to talk. I'm completely fine." <laughs> so uh, we were therapy for each other, is what it was. And so, yeah, I took those great examples and pulled them learned a lot from it and pulled him forward to carry him with me as well as get better. And I think it was around that time that you started recruiting specifically uh, spies, essentially, from Russia. Is that right? Yeah, it had started before then. So when I first got assigned to the New York field office, you go through a rotation of training for different experiences. And one of them is on surveillance. And so literally I was on a surveillance squad where you're assigned different subjects of investigations from case agents. And this was meant so you learn the city. And this is before GPSs. This is before right. anything like that. You literally had a what's called a Hagstrom's map. Yeah. And you're sitting there trying to figure out your way around the five boroughs of Manhattan. And your subject is a taxi driver going to all the airports. <laughs> um, oh, my God. That was a nightmare. Um, so I about after about three or four months of that, I can't remember how long it actually was. You get assigned a permanent squad. And my permanent squad was a Russian intelligence squad where our job was to focus on the Russian military intelligence and either recruit them or neutralize them. Neutralizing meaning, you know, you defeat them from doing their job of spying on us. And okay, all you these don't kill individuals, them. <laughs> right. That's why it has very specific yeah. on that. You don't neutralize them by killing. Um, you neutralize their efforts to undermine the national security of the United States and our NATO allies. And they're all diplomats at the United Nations. And our job was to, you know, just recruit them, get them to come over to our side, sell. This is where the pitching comes yeah. in. Sell, 
sell the toughest sales product in the world or service, which is American patriotism to Russian spies who probably most likely do not want to buy that product or service. Yeah. And it was illegal for me to initiate contact. And also their training told them if someone initiates contact with you, they're probably intelligence and so have no contact yeah. again. So no cold calls, sell your service and go. <laughs> so how do you do it then? I mean, there's part of me that's wondering, is it because you've got a big enough suitcase of cash? Yeah, but I'm guessing it's not that at all. Talk me through how you even start to recruit a Russian spy for the US government. Yeah, easy answer on that one is you don't. Kind of like in, as most of your guests are in the sales business, you don't sell anyone anything. Mm. You're often you're often a solution to a pain point in people's lives. Right, right. And all you're and all you're doing every day is is trying your best to discover those pain points and challenges and priorities of those around you and matching up resources that you have towards those things. Mm. And just because you have a solution to a challenge, priority, or pain point to someone, next step is can they trust you? to be about them mm. or are you about yourself? And so that's where the trust comes in. So my job every day was to discover which one of these intelligence officers might have a priority challenge or pain point that aligns with my resource. In other words, they might have a deep-seated hatred of Putin right. and who doesn't, but believe it or not, not everyone does. Um, or they have children that they want to have educated in the West and not in the East. They have elder care with parents, with elderly parents getting older that they want a better health care system. Whatever it is, these are priority challenges and pain points that all of us have. My job is to see which one of them had those. Let them know that there was someone in their in their circle that could offer them a solution to those pain points, and then assess whether any of these individuals might be interested in potentially having a dialogue about it and then offering myself in some way as the person that could solve it. And a person that's not going to get them or their families killed for trying to solve it. So that's the whole the challenger. So it is right. the toughest sales job, as I always say. In, 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 in one of your books, you talk about a, a specific Russian who you call Leo. And I think you said that you were the 15th agent who would try to kind of start a trusted relationship with him. How, I mean, we don't have enough time to recount your book, of course, but how do you, tell us a bit more about how you start to build trust from such a cold beginning. A couple different things in there. So Leo was a confidential human source for us. So he had been working, cooperating with us for a number of years. And Leo had been a immigrant from a Russian Republic right after World War II. He was, again, things in the books are fictionalized enough to protect the identities in the name of the innocents. But uh, Leo, he had actually, I think he was about six years old at the end of World War II. So he was an older gentleman by, by the time I had gotten him. And I remember he told me the stories about being in a German resettlement camp as his family had fled one of the Russian republics trying to escape uh, Stalin. And But he was fluent in Russian. He's fluent in another uh, language from his native country. I won't say it just to protect him, but even yeah. though he's passed on now. Um, actually, his first handler, we knew that the Russians were going to him because he owned a, a sportsman shop and Russians are, a lot of Russians are sportsmen. So he owned a sportsman shop as one of his main, many entrepreneurial ventures in his life. And so the Russians were going to him because he spoke the language. 
Um, he knew how to appeal to this potential clientele. And so he, we had a number of Russian diplomats and spies that would frequent his shop. And so we had agents dating back to, I think, I think the first agent contact with him was 1965. Wow. And so he began his dialogue with us back then. And when I got him, yeah, I think I was like the 15th uh, FBI agent handler. And some of these, you know, remember every relationship's different. Leo was a very entrepreneurial, make that human connection guy. He wasn't just the facts, ma'am kind of guy where you go in and FBI agent will hold up a pad and debrief you on the, your experiences and what someone said or didn't say. Leo was a networker. He was a recruiter of human beings mm. because he was an entrepreneur. He ran his own business. And so, and he also knew our subjects that we were trying to recruit really, really well their mindset, their needs, their wants, their dreams. He knew how to communicate on a personal level. And so some agents made a connection with that. There are those 15 different handlers and some agents couldn't. Mm. I was one that could. I'm very entrepreneurial. I love that human connection. And so this grandfatherly figure entered my life because the previous handler, the FBI agent, didn't have a great relationship with him and was moving on. So they gave him to me. I was kind of a newer guy on the squad. And I said, give them to me. And I, it was such a great symbiotic relationship because he knew what I needed. Matter of fact, that's where I came up with the six signs of predicting behavior because Leo knew what I needed to be successful in my career. And at the same time, in order for him to be successful in his own mind of being an American patriot, he, he needed to recruit spies. Right. And so it was very much... In order, and also order to make a little money on the side from us, he needed to be able to provide me certain things. And so he knew what I needed and he knew what he needed to be successful. So it was very symbiotic. And he taught me a lot about our, our Russian spies and you know culture, strengths, weaknesses, priorities in their lives. At the same time, uh, I was forced to learn how to handle someone with such seniority, a lot of independence, because you need to exercise a lot of, gotta articulate boundaries, I guess, because sometimes when someone is so entrepreneurial and aggressive, they won't know the boundaries in which they can legally operate. And so that took a lot of communication on my part as well. And I only had maybe five years in the FBI at the time, and this guy had been operating for us hell longer than I'd been alive. <laughs> so it was a, it was a great challenge, but a great education. And we did a lot of very successful operations together. It was a great, a great time in life. Wow. Okay. So first big question on, on, on tangible, usable stuff for the listeners. How can I tell if I can trust someone? I don't think there's anyone listening that hasn't experienced someone that made them feel creepy. <laughs> Mm, yeah. Or, or something seemed a little off. I'm going to explain to you right now what makes you feel that way because the opposite of that is when you can trust someone. Most likely, again, nothing in life when dealing with human beings is 100%, but you're going to up, up your odds of a good, healthy engagement because that's all I'm ever looking for when engaging someone is how do I have a healthy, strong relationship with great communication because that's something I can trust. Because trust is first let's define trust because we're assessing who we can trust and not trust. First, trust is first and foremost to me, it's predictable behavior because if I can predict what someone's reasonably going to do in every situation, that makes me feel safe. 
because that's really the bedrock of what trust is. Trust is when you feel safe. When you're recruiting a spy, you want that spy to trust you. In other words, that you want them to feel safe with you. When you're selling a product or service and you're pitching someone, you want them to feel safe with you mm-hmm. more than they do someone else. Because, come on, most people are selling the same widget. Everyone has a widget and a lot of them are very similar. So why should they buy from you? What makes them want to buy from you? You make them feel safe when someone else doesn't. So let's talk about what makes someone feel safe and have that sense of psychological comfort that we're all biologically and genetically seeking in every eh, instant. And that is we're looking for congruence. Congruence is the best thing that we are constantly assessing. In other words, when, when we get that creepy feeling from someone, it's because we are sensing an incongruence. I call it sensing, but here's what we're actually observing. We're observing a disconnect between what someone's saying, what someone is acting, their words, actions, and deeds, or something's not congruent with each other. As opposed to when we're seeing congruence and we're seeing someone making us feel safe. And so I have my four pillars of communication, which is our language. So these are the things I'm looking for for congruence or discongruence. So they're making it about me for one thing. The way that someone makes a conversation about you is they're seeking your thoughts and opinions instead of sharing their own. Two, they're talking in terms of your priorities, challenges, and pain points instead of their own. Three, they're validating you and being non-judgmentally curious. And four, they're empowering you with choices. Mm-hmm. So if someone is doing those things and making about me by using those four things, that makes me feel safe. Now, if they're doing that non-verbally, are they open and accommodating nonverbals? Are they smiling? Are their eyebrows elevating? Are they using ventral displays with palms up? Are they broad and are they open when doing those things? Because that's also congruent. So they're demonstrating high comfort while making it about me. And also they're matching my tempo, my speed of which I'm willing to move forward with a relationship and a dialogue. And so those three things are in congruence. That makes me feel safe. Most likely we have some good trust potentially percolating as opposed to the people that are generally making us feel creepy are the ones that are probably using good language because a good salesperson or someone who's really a high manipulator knows the proper language to use. That's why we can think we're really good and you know detecting someone who's trying to sell us a bad bill of goods mm, or a bad mm. used car or something like this because we're w- looking for that language but we can never really pick it up because the language is really good right. but we still feel creepy yeah yeah here's the creepy because they were not matching our tempo and their agenda was about themselves and not about us and we pick up this incongruence between someone's intent and someone's actions and that intent seeps through by their tempos incongruent they're not matching our speed. They're pressing for answers. They're pressing for resolutions. And they keep leaning in, maybe a little stress because they're not you're not operating at their tempo. So you might see a little eyebrow compression, a little lip compression, and they're leaning in a little too much. So there's a little bit incongruence. So they're saying the right words, but their but their body language and deeds are incongruent with that, makes us creeped out. So that's what we're looking for. And you can assess those mm. things pretty rapidly mm. because we're talking about language and body language. You know, one of the greatest things we can do as individuals to generate and inspire trust slash making someone feel safe is being transparent, open, and um, uh, vulnerable. In other words, transparent with, here's what's really good about this product and service. 
Here's what you might not like about this product and service. Help me understand what your pain points are, and I'll say you what this can actually solve and what it can't. If someone asks us a tough question or, if, or we ask someone else a tough question, they should be able to respond to that tough question or transparency-seeking question. In other words, if I don't exactly understand what this service is you're offering or I don't understand exactly what you said and I ask you a clarifying question, you should be apologetic. You should be responding right away at the same tempo and speed that you responded before because there's not an inconsistency with that. And I'm looking for congruence basically again on how you're responding with the transparency in which you respond. I'm looking for you to own it, that you made a mistake maybe with how you shared that information with you as opposed to someone who is now giving you more double talk. You still don't, when they give you an answer, you still don't understand what they're saying and they're maybe pressing a little too fast. They become a little more animated or less animated. In other words, they deviated from their normal baseline with you. If that happens, it'll cost you nothing to back off, slow down and come back another day. So mm. I, I always say I'd rather lose 5% of good opportunities than 100% of bad opportunities by making that call. Sure. So what about the flip side? We have talked about how we know whether we can trust someone else, but what if we are trying to get someone to trust us? Is it just uh, the flip side of those things that you've said, or is the more we can do to proactively try and create that trust? All those things I just said, no doubt. And to me, it's always balancing the dichotomy of uh, confidence and, and humility. So the confidence of, hey, I know my product and service exceptionally well. So you do have to be a master of what it is, the widget or the, the service you're trying to sell. So you know the insides and outs, but also you have to have the humility to know, but I'm not the best. I don't have it all. And so balancing that dichotomy. And then the most important thing that we haven't talked about yet, and that is patience. Yeah. It's only, it's only valid for 24 hours. <laughs> you, you might get the one sale by using a lever of, of influence and pressure, but what do you, what's the cost? The cost is a brand, your personal brand, and the personal brand will go to the product brand, which will go to the company brand. If someone buys a product and service because you use a lever of influence or you use a lever of pressure because these tactics, they work. I mean, I don't say what's right or wrong. It's just talking about the cause and effect of them. Those tactics and things work. The challenge mm. is, is that they're also recognized. They might not be recognized in the moment because they're designed not to be recognized in the moment. They're designed for compliance. The problem is, about 30 seconds after you get compliance and this person now has buyer's remorse, you now have destroyed your brand. And the most important thing, anyone in mm. any organization mm. selling any product or service, whether it's a spy recruiter, you're selling insurance, you're selling finance, I don't care what it is, or you're selling the best widget on the face of the planet. The most important thing each of us has is our brand because a brand is going to say whether we get referrals. You destroy brand, no referrals. So you've said a lot of interesting things here. Just rewinding slightly, I, I, I like your analogy of uh, the widget. That's the same for every company because I think, you know, we often find ourselves in that position. And if we're not careful, especially as a big business like IBM, we find ourselves in a, uh, a commodity war and it's a race to the bottom. If everyone's the same, then the, 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 the buyer is going to go with the cheapest option. Of course they are. 
And so what we're trying to do is convince them of, of the extra value around that. And the number one piece of value that our clients and prospects want is to alleviate them of that fear that if they go for you, you're not going to screw it up and they're not going to lose their jobs. And and I think, you know, we, we, we have that over and over again. We Let's tell them that we're a safe pair of hands. And I think, well, we can tell them that, yeah, but... <laughs> That doesn't mean that the box is checked and they're going to totally believe us. So this is a long-winded way of asking you, when you, because you help a lot of executives as well, do you follow, do you have a certain pattern for pitching? And does that pattern look similar for recruiting someone in, in, in a spy capacity or, or pitching to someone in business? A pattern for pitching. What a great question. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd give different answers at different points in my life. And the answer I'm going to give today is really, really simple. Let go and be present. That is literally the best thing that you can do to give any pitch. If you're about to give a pitch, you've done the work. You should have. You know what? You know your product and service inside and out. If you've done the work... You have a decent understanding of who you're selling to, or at least the organization you're selling to, if it's if you're going for organizations. So you can you have a decent idea of a potential challenge and pain point that your product and service is going to solve. The best thing you can do in every moment, and this is whether as I had to do this for recruiting spies, and this is what I do on you know interviewing anyone today, or whether it's a coaching client or not, is let go of every single agenda you have. Let go of everything and just focus on them. Be present for them. Listen to every single word they're saying because everything out of their mouth is what's important to them. That's what you're there to discover. You must be curious about everything and offer a solution or an opportunity for a solution because you don't want to force anything, an opportunity for a solution for the things that they're sharing with you. It literally is 100% presence. Right. And listening more than talking, even in a pitch. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And it, uh, avoid the I word. Focus on you. Use words like what instead of why. Because mm -hmm. what is very specific. What specifically is your challenge instead of why do you have that challenge? What specifically are you looking for? If this was if this was your ideal product and this is your ideal service, what would it include? What would it look like a year from now? What would it look like a year behind us? What's been some of your greatest uh, disappointments in other companies you've worked with? What would you hope that we fulfilled and I fulfilled for you? All those types of what questions, and all of them are completely focused on not what you're selling, but understanding the person you're engaging with. And you can only do that if you've completely let go of you and you are there for them. And of course, showing the person that you understand them is a way of building trust for them as well, right? 100%. There's a lot of tools and techniques and tactics and strategies people will have, whether it's called matching or mirroring or, or, and I get asked a lot, say, Robin, you know, you never mentioned in your training you do, you know, how you matched head nods, you know, like someone leans their head to one side. And I said, I said, 
the problem is anytime you're focused on what you should be doing, that's one less second away from what they are doing. Mm, yes. If you are totally focused on them, all these things that are the tactics and strategies that you think you have to do will naturally come in congruence with them because, and those are things to that are good to practice when you're just starting your journey to learn how to focus on someone else because those are things that you need to be able to do. The faster you can let go of the need to think about it and just do it because you are literally connecting. And this is, I, I call this deep, deep empathy. See what, I mean, when you're talking and you're dialoguing, it's what are they feeling like when I'm saying the words, right now what is their response what am i looking for am i provided am are they feeling safe with me right now or are they not how can i adjust that what am i not doing right for them and so you'd like to i the solutions you want to have a checklist and a checkbox and i need to do x y and z as the best practice yeah they're out there there's a lot of them and, and none of them are wrong but if you want to go deeper and you want to elevate to the level of master, the masters have no agenda. The masters are there for others. Right. And I think some people listening to this might just be breathing a small sigh of relief because I think the amount of information, I mean, it's why I started this podcast, because you can't just talk about pitching in an hour because it's got so many facets. And if you're not careful, you can drown in, in those facets yeah. and actually thinking, you know what, more important than any tip, trick, technique is to be in the moment and to be yourself. I think that is really powerful advice. Absolutely. Even doing my own show, I used to start out with show prep. Right. I used to have... Lots of questions that I thought were very witty that I have to come up <laughs> with to ask this person. I did the same thing in the FBI. Yeah. And... And some people, this is not a right or a wrong way. It wasn't a good match for me and my personality. Mm. It wasn't a good match for me, which is I want to be present. Yeah. In order to be present. Someone asked me the other day, how do I do a prep for a pitch? Yeah. Whether it's a pitch for um, a service I'm offering or a pitch for someone coming on my show or even just the, the an interview itself. I think of rain. Wow. That's it. I have to clear my mind and I think of a rainstorm and that what is the opening line that I can use? I only really try to think of an opening line that's going to start the rain to pour. Right. And then I just have to watch and listen to the rain and there'll be ebbs and flows in that rain. And if something causes the rain to change pattern, well, that's something I need to explore because, oh, what's, what's there to cause that rain to change? And so I literally just think of rain. Um, it's a very Buddhist way of uh, I was thinking of say, things. I'd also, if you don't mind me saying, was, I, was, I was hoping that you'd be a bit like Agent Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks, and, and, and I think you are. <laughs> I don't know whether you've ever watched that show, but he no. is an FBI <laughs> agent, and um, he, come, he, he, he puts himself into deep uh, meditative states to, to solve crimes, yeah. and, he, and he listens to his dreams, and it's all about this kind of Buddhist way of thinking. But, um, yeah, I, I, matter of fact, I'm, I know people that are not watching can't see this. On my thing right behind me, I have The Art of Living by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, mm. um, the great Buddhist, and right underneath of it is the Tao Te Ching. 
Uh, so, and I'm a big reader of Eckhart Tolle. Yeah, the power of the power now. Of now. Yeah. And I read all the human behavior stuff too, all the nonfiction books mm. on leadership and Simon Sinek yeah. and Adam Grant and all these great thought leaders on this. And yes, but in order to exercise that, you must be present for the other. Mm. You must be a deep empathy. You must have deep listening. And the only way to do that is you must let go of you and your agenda. Yeah. You know what it is. You don't have to think about it. You'll recognize you'll recognize an ability to flow the two together when the other person presents it, when they're ready to present it. And only to do that, you must be present, which it's so funny when, when you were talking to the world of spy recruiting or pitches, we think it's this process. Okay, it is. But if you practice that process and you get better at it, you start realizing that, huh, here's why it works. I mean, my my first book I wrote was back in 2000, I think I wrote in 2009 or 2010. It's called It's Not All About Me. Right. I wrote that when I was an instructor at the Counterintelligence Training Center of the FBI. I taught recruitment stuff and I had groups of five or six agents. We go out to the field and we practice human interactions based on a process and a procedure for elicitation and interviewing and all this stuff. And it's extremely effective. But Why? Because I was making people feel safe. Mm. Well, if we just focus on the safe and not on what I'm trying to do yeah. and focus on what they want to do, then it's a lot more effective. So in order to get where we are today, we have to have a journey. And that was the journey. So let me just ask you about a related topic, because I do tend to ask most of my guests this, and that is nerves. Now, a lot of people get nervous before they do a pitch or a presentation or a speech, including incredibly famous people as well. Um, Rory Sutherland was on episode one. He, he gets incredibly nervous, you know. Is there more to it? This is a double-pronged double question. Is there more to it than visualizing rain? Or is that your answer for nerves? And could you tell me about your most precarious moment in the FBI, when you were the most nervous dealing with someone or something, and did you have a method back then to help you through that? Yes, for both. Um, <clears throat> so the rain is for being present, but now how to get over nerves? It is different than that, is I have another thing I do very routinely. If we understand the origin of why we get nervous and why we get butterflies, or um, any trepidation is because we fear being judged. We fear, you know, that's why people fear public speaking um, because we're feared that everyone's about to judge us. I don't fear public speaking at all. I get excited. Right. I love public speaking. And, and, and here's why. Framing. Beautiful thing we have as a human being is we have the ability to frame the context and create a world around us completely differently at every moment if we want. Instead of fearing that they're going to judge us because our ancient tribal brain says, if we're not part of the tribe, we're going to be ostracized and die. Right. I say to myself, I cannot wait to have a conversation because these people can't wait to hear me speak. I'm about to have, I'm about to share information with a bunch of friends that can't wait to have a conversation with me. Right. That's the framing I will use. And if I, if I happen to be nervous and I can't overcome those nerves beforehand, I'll have a conversation, maybe one or two people beforehand. And I'll use, vulnerability, self-deprecating humor. And I'll say to them and say, listen, this is a really big deal and I'm terrified. Would you mind smiling at me if I smile at you in the crowd? Wow, that's <laughs> a great always, idea. 
Yeah, because I mean, why not? Because again, you're being transparent, you're being open. It's a gender of trust. You'll get a giggle, you'll get a smile, and then you and then when I get on stage, you know what I say? Listen, folks, I'm really nervous. And I asked I asked Joe and I, and I asked um Danny to smile at me if I need it. Right. And so and then I get laugh, I get a smile, and so it's then all fine because now I'm talking with a bunch of friends and I've been vulnerable, I've been transparent, and now I can deliver mm. the great information that's already in my brain. You take some of the pressure off yourself that way as well, don't you, I think? Totally. And it's real, it's organic, it's congruent, and that builds trust because I just made everyone feel safe because what did I just describe? Everyone. Mm. Now, pitching spies, yeah. The After my first time doing this, I got excited. I didn't, you know, so nervousness and excitement, it's a way of transitioning the energy you're feeling. And I remember it was literally, I had... How much time? I'd been on my squad maybe five or six months, just assigned to the GRU squad, and they assign the toughest nuts to crack to the new guys. That, in other words, is no shot. And it yeah. was we were assigned the code clerks. The code clerks are the cipher clerks. They're the ones that do all the taking all the top secret information that the bad guys has, and they put it all in code and they transmit it over, you know, the airways back to Moscow Center. So they have the jewels to get everything that of value that comes in and out of a diplomatic establishment goes through them. Mm. But they also protect these guys a lot because they hold the jewels of the kingdom. They're not out. They're not allowed out all that often. They don't speak English. Um, they, they pick people that are not vulnerable mm. to have, in other words, they don't have priorities, challenges, and pain points that anyone around them would have solutions for like me. But I happen to have mine. One of my co-clerks was going on for a walk with his wife a couple times a week on the east side of Manhattan. And so I was waiting there every single time he was. Wow. And at his furthest point away from the mission, uh, it was probably, uh, so mission was like on 67th street, no 57th street, 53rd. Gosh, the time is changing. I don't remember, <laughs> but he'd walk all the way up to like 97th, Yeah, him and his wife. And I'd always pass him at the same place every day, desensitizing him towards my presence. In other words, making him feel safe with this, with this guy. And I remember I was finally given approval. And we agreed that I was going to just say hi. That's it. Just say hi. And I was going to say hi in Russian to him. So that way, if you see the same person, the person is in your presence. And how was I to know that he was a Russian by saying and actually say his name? His name was Vyacheslav. And so, and I, I, I don't speak Russian well at all. And it was, I was going to say, Strasvisha Vyacheslav. Mm -hmm. And, very nervous because here I am about to actually engage a Russian spy and he's out there with his wife. Yeah. And, and I remember the nerves were really, really high for this one. And because again, I, I, I was 28 going on 29 years old and first thing, first major operation I'm going to do. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if I don't overcome looking stressed, this is not going to go well. And so I reframed it. I said, instead of pitching a Russian spy, all I'm about to do is, is say hi to a friend. And if he wants, offer an opportunity for him and his family for the future. Right. Total mind shift. And so with that mind shift, I was excited rather than nervous. Excitement comes across much better and much more trustworthy than nervousness. And so what happened? Uh, I said those words. He, him and his wife looked at me with their eyes bugged out and they proceeded to basically run away from me and never came out again. Perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. That, that's what you call an answer. Right. Oh, wow. I love it. We 
create these humbling moments for ourselves. And so when we do have something that goes sideways and it doesn't go as well as we want, the best thing we can do is own it. Right. And just think about it, reflect on it, do a great after action on yourself. Not where you're beating yourself up, but just saying, hey, I'm human, I'm learning, and here's what I'm going to do different and better next time. If you do have an opportunity to engage again, you apologize and say, listen, I was off the mark, no excuse. What can I do differently for you this time? And that's really movement. Mm. That's just be better tomorrow than you were today. Do you have a favorite pitch? One that's just gone really well and you think, that made me feel so good. I was so proud of that one. You hit a few words in there that I don't think I really feel. And if you do, they're fleeting because pride um, that something went well. At this point in our lives, and I know you're there with me, it's good to feel that in the moment because it's good to recognize rapidly what was successful and what successful was. I made it about them in order to make it about them again. I have to let go of that pride and that, wow, that was really good. And now it's a new moment now. I need to be able to do it again. There's been so many moments in my life where something did go really, really well and really, really right. I've, I've recruited spies. And the second I recruited that spy, I'm like feeling full of myself and you try to do it again, it goes completely sideways. Why? Because then all of a sudden it came back to me again. It's like, oh, I got this down. Look at me. I'm the master. Right. And then that leakage happens the next engagement you have. And that next engagement you have, you made it too much about you because you forgot the reason why the last one was, was successful is because you let go of you. And so it's, I haven't had a sense of pride in, in quite a long time. I've had a sense of accomplishment where something went well, where you have someone say something very kind, like, wow, thank you so much for a great conversation. I got a lot out of that. Wow, you made me think of something I really haven't thought of before. You made me recognize I have something to solve and you have a resource I never really thought of before. Those are great moments because you realized I solved someone's problem. Mm. That's a great moment. You're of service. You know, those moments when someone... Those moments when you recognize I've been of service, those are moments where you feel good. And I, I would say I, there's been moments I felt good that I've been able to do that. I try to avoid pride because it's really been my, my undoing from time to time. You sound like your own harshest critic. Absolutely. Aren't we all? Yeah. I just wonder if there is a middle ground where we can be proud without it stopping us from being humble i can i mean everyone uses everyone has a different definition of words so if someone you know i i, I guess it's pride you know there, there's pride in there but man i gotta watch it i gotta be careful and the midground is is just understanding your why and your purpose i i i, I say i like feeling good instead of feeling pride i feel happiness and my happiness is really simple. Happiness to me is a great, great and fantastic conversation. Because happiness is different than pleasure. Pleasure is, is fleeting. It's things we pursue that are materialistic, that are very human-based things. Money, houses, cars, you'll never have enough because it's, it's a pursuit of pleasure. Happiness is a state of mind. And I know exactly what my happiness is. My happiness is a great, fantastic conversation where we make a great, deep connection and I have been of service. It can be prideful, 
because it, again, you feel a lot of pride, man, I got this down. Well, then you got to <laughs> ring it back in. Yeah. So it, and also those times when I'm a harsh critic, it's not a, being a harsh critic without being very kind to myself. I'm very kind to myself because I, I do know, I do not self-loathe at all. I love, you know, in order to be really a great service to others, you have to be very happy for others and you have to be happy with yourself. I'm, I'm very, I'm very kind to myself and I'm kind in a sense that I know I'm not perfect. I'm going to work at this every single day. I'm going to be better at this tomorrow, but who I am today is good. <laughs> in the words of RuPaul, if you don't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anybody else? Absolutely. And that's why, you know, the books you read and the books I read are a lot about that. Yeah. I am I read everything stoic. I read everything presence. I read all the mystic stuff on, on right. you know, wh wh whether it's the Tao Te Ching or the Buddha or anyone else. Um, yes, it is all very good about how to take care of self, as well as books like, um, boy, the Body Keeps a Score on Trauma is also a fantastic book on recognizing what trauma looks like in ourselves and also, most importantly, looking, seeing and recognizing what trauma looks like in others. Because most of the time when you are engaging someone and, and inappropriate behavior comes out, unhealthy behavior comes out, and if it's if, even if it's directed at you, it's because you've triggered a trauma event in their life. And what about heroes throughout your lifetime? Who have been the real big standout inspirations for you? That's another tough question because I, I come from a generation of time that generally didn't have heroes. Um, Gen Xers tend to f see themselves as their own heroes because we, if you live through trauma, um, you become self-reliant because we think we're surrounded by idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are a number of people in history that had... because. Heroes says to me that you view someone as pretty close to perfect, and I haven't known anyone like that. I've known people that have a lot of traits that are very, um, very laudable that I, I do admire. And, and so people in history, some of my favorite favorites that I've read are uh, Leonardo da Vinci, um, Benjamin Franklin, um, Probably Teddy Roosevelt as a president, uh, Winston Churchill as the prime minister. I mean, th there's lots of different different individuals. And the trait that I, I love in each of these individuals, when it has shown through, is their, their non-judgmental curiosity. Mm. And so I really dive deep to read and understand and interact with those people that have this unbridled curiosity because I have found through everyone I've engaged with in my life, the ones that have this great and beautiful curiosity wind up solving every single problem for themselves and those around them because as Jim Madison, his books, uh, Call Sign Chaos says, I have no solutions. All the solutions I have, I found in history. And so those people that are the most curious have discovered a lot of solutions. And so I, I love the curious. And let's talk about your books for a minute. How many books have you actually written? Three. Which one? The audience have got to start somewhere. If, you, if they've never read a Robin Drake book, which one should they start with? I'd start with my first, my self-published. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's the cult classic that is, it's funny. It's, it's, I, it's, it's called It's Not All About Me. 
I love starting with that one because it's only 25,000 words. You can get through it really rapidly. The Audible copy that I, I read myself and produced myself, uh, it's only about a three-hour listen, yeah. which includes a podcast with one of my favorite friends in the world, Jack Schaefer, on elicitation. And I like that book because it's short, it's sweet, there's a lot of nuggets in there, and it was literally at a point in my life, because I wrote in 2009, 2010, where I was really picking up steam on this journey. And so you'll get a lot of Robin granular back then. The stories and anecdotes were, and uh, it's just a good start because it was, I, I see it as my start. And what came next? Next came the code of trust. Yeah. And that is the five steps and the five principles of building trust. And that was, and each of my books uh, follows a different point in my career. So the code of trust was kind of me in the meat of my career where it was spy recruitment stories and the humbling journey that I had of learning how to focus on others and not myself and how that impacts, you know, operations, recruiting spies and just different aspects of life. And then the final one is one that we were talking about a little bit earlier, and that was sizing people up. Sizing people up is interesting because the title's kind of a, a misnomer a little bit, and that is sizing people up is the book is really about understanding others at a very deep level, making that connection and assessing how they viewed the relationship from their point of mm. view. What had happened was that book was inspired by my understanding that was finally happening because of the code of trust. So the code of trust is a focus on our behaviors that we need to demonstrate to have someone feel safe with us mm. and build trust. And what I was realizing was, was the more I'm focused on others and assessing and understanding others, they're getting really predictable. <laughs> and what I started seeing was that all human beings are exceptionally predictable. Everyone, I mean, everyone is very predictable. Everyone around you, and here's here's what's really fun. Everyone listening, know this one truth from this point forward. Everyone around you is very predictable. They're all going to act in their own best interests in what they think is going to make them safe, secure, and prosperous for themselves and those they care about. All your job is is to figure out what they think that is, and you now know what they're going to do. They're going to act in their best interests according to what they think is safe. That's a nice little paradigm shift there. It is. Yeah. But it makes you focused on others. And that's what my entire journey has been because my upbringing was self-reliance, which is about self. And I had to balance that dichotomy out about making it about others. Mm. And so all these things I've learned along the way were how do I make it about others? And it, it went from tactical and strategic behaviors to who I am. Well, listen, this has been absolutely fascinating. It's been informative. It's been quite emotional, though. It's been enlightening. It's been all sorts of things. And I really appreciate your time. Do you have any final words of wisdom for the listeners? Something I wish I knew when I was 20 years old, and we kind of alluded to it throughout the our chat today, and that is... Instead of looking at yourself and saying, what can I do to make myself look good? And what can I do to be successful? If you truly want to be successful, if you want to be prosperous in your life and, and take care of those around you, figure out the priorities, challenges, and pain points and the jobs of those people around you and ask yourself, what can I do to make their lives easier? What can I do to be a resource for their success? And do so without any expectation of reciprocity. 
You do that one thing, you add that one behavior to who you are as a human being, the entire world is yours. You can do any, you can, and what I mean the world is yours is you can maneuver in any direction you want to explore because who wouldn't want to be part of your life? Who wouldn't want to help you? Who wouldn't want to be there for you? Because you've already proactively been a resource for others without an ask. You do that. And that's what I've seen the most successful people in life are. They're people that are problem solvers of others with, a, with no ask. That's a great way to live. Robin, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Danny, I can't thank you enough as well. Um, I know it's going well when I have no idea what the time is. And I am completely engrossed in everything you've said. So thank you so much. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity and much more. 